Hey, let's open our Bibles to 1 Kings. We're going to look at uh, chapter 15 tonight. 1 Kings chapter 15. And while you're opening to 1 Kings 15, I'm just going to recap the previous chapter just to kind of get us into where we're at. Um, you recall that in chapter 14 that we discussed last week that it says that um, there was a time when Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. And Jeroboam, instead of going to uh, seek the Lord himself, because as you know, he was involved in pagan idolatry, uh, creating two different worship centers, one in the northern part of Israel in, in Dan, and then another one in the southern part of the northern district in Bethel. And he created these two altars, and they worshipped a golden calf at each of these things, which we know was idolatry. It was uh, something God had never intended his people to worship anything other than him. And yet Jeroboam uh, does these things. And so now that his hypocrisy and his blatant idolatry is in full bloom, his child um, Abijah becomes sick, and so instead of going and seeking God and seeking a prophet of God himself, he does what, uh, well, he sends his wife, and he disguises her. And, and she goes, and she goes to Shiloh, where there was a prophet not by the name of Ahijah. There, there's a lot of similarities in names here, so there's just one character that's different, so don't get, let that trip you up. But So she goes to Ahijah, she comes down to Shiloh to visit him, and the whole idea is to inquire about the well-being of the child. And, and of course, uh, Ahijah at this time is an old man, he can't see, he's probably got cataracts and all kinds of other things, he, he can't see. And yet, while Jeroboam's wife is making her way to his residence, the Lord speaks to him and says, oh, by the way, there's someone... There's a woman coming and she's disguising herself to be somebody different, but she's Jeroboam's wife. So just so you know, Ahijah. So as soon as she walks in the door, she's amazed that Ahijah addresses her as Jeroboam's wife, much to her chagrin, blowing her cover. But then the Lord has something to share with her that she needs to take back to her husband, Jeroboam, this idolatrous king of the north. And the message was this. He says, God said this through the prophet. He says, because I exalted you from among the people and made you ruler over my people, Israel, and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been as my servant David. Notice, David is the benchmark here. And you'll notice that as we go through the book of Kings, and it speaks of the, the kings of Judah, that there's always a comparison uh, of David's character. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, David got himself into some messes, didn't he? Yes, he did. But there's a difference. David never struggled with idolatry. Did David fall into sin and do something really horrible? Yes, he did. But the cool thing is, and something we need to remember, is that David repented of those sins, and his heart was after God with all of his heart. He went after God with all of his heart. That's why the Bible can say he was a man after God's own heart. So David is not sinless, but God was very pleased with David's heart because when he did sin, he didn't just gloss it over. He didn't just put it under the rug. He didn't pay people off to keep quiet about it. No, he, can, he confessed it. He got it out in the open, and his life was never the same. And the sword would never depart from his house. He would go through many family problems and changes, and it was just a horrible thing that he went through. 
But he knew he was forgiven. And he knew he was going to heaven in spite of the adultery with Bathsheba, in spite of the murder of her husband, in spite of those things. And yet God will use him as a benchmark for all the kings of Judah. How important is repentance? How, is it, how important is confession of sin and repentance? If that be the case, I would say that it's very important because guess what? God doesn't hold David, he doesn't hold those sins over his head. Because as far as God's concerned, they've been confessed or behind him. He says, I, I, I cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. I, I cast them behind my back into the sea where I'll never look upon them again. And how can he do that? Because of his righteousness, because of Christ. Now, Christ hadn't been born yet, but God was already um, priming the people for the Messiah to come. And their faith in this Messiah that would come was what gave them that confidence that when they died, even in the Old Testament, that they will go to heaven because of their belief in the Messiah, their belief and trust in God and his promises looking forward. And they did, and many did. And there are many Old Testament believers in heaven. And so he goes on here and he says, um, you know, but you have not been as my servant David who kept my commandments and who followed me, notice, with all of his heart to do only what was right in my eyes. But you have done more evil than all who were before you, for you have gone and made for yourself other gods, molded images to provoke me to anger and have cast behind me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. Now, this is important for us to remember. That's why I'm reading it again, because as we look at the passage we're looking at tonight, we're going to see the fulfillment uh, of this. And he says, and remember this, underline it if you have to. Therefore, verse 10, behold, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam. Notice every male in Israel, bond and free, that belong to Jeroboam. Notice, and I will take away the remembrance of the house of Jeroboam as one takes away refuse until it's all gone. And the dogs will eat whoever belongs to Jeroboam and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field, for the Lord has spoken. And don't you love it when God speaks? I love it when God speaks. I love it when he speaks to me through his word. And, you know, if by just reading the word of God, you are putting yourself in the very best place. You're putting yourself on the very best place. There is no better place on the planet than wherever you are at reading your Bible. There's no greater place. And you know what? If your heart is in a place, and you know, we all get at these times in our life where we seem and feel kind of dull. We don't really feel like reading the Word. We don't feel like we're like, eh, it's a little too hard. I don't understand. You know, I get all of that. But you know what? Here's the thing. The, the, the Lord says he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. A person who's diligently seeking the Lord doesn't give up after five minutes and go, I don't understand this. Diligently seek him. People in universities diligently seek their studies. They get into it. They're looking at the books. They're looking at this. They're looking at that. Why don't we do that with the Bible? If we don't get, it on the, if we don't get something by the first pass, and, and that pass is kind of lazy, we're just kind of, I didn't get anything out of it. Well, you know what? Maybe you need to read it again. <laughs> and maybe you needed to read it again. And read it again, and then read it slow, and then pray and say, Lord, help me to understand anything you want to speak to me through this. Because believe me, the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide between the bones and the marrow and the ligaments and the, and the marrow. I mean, 
and is a discerner of the intents and the hearts of man. And as I read it, I'm under the microscope. I am in, I'm in the place of God looking into me. He's shining the one million candle power light on my soul as I read it. But people today, they, they, they're in, they, they judge God. People in universities, now what do they do? They, 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 they tell all their students, you don't need to believe in God, you just need to believe the higher critics, those of us who've been to Harvard and Yale. Believe them. Hogwash. What is the chaff to the wheat? Amen? And God's word is a hammer. It is a fire, and I love it. Please read it and, and ask God to help you understand. And it's, it's, there, there's so many things that we've got available to us today to help us know it, but it's so wonderful, and I love it. But notice, but you've done more evil than all of them, he says. And then finally, um, and it says, Arise, therefore, so God tells this woman, this uh, Jeroboam's wife, Arise, therefore, and go to your own house, and when your feet enter the city, the child shall die, and, and all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. And, um, and so it's a really horrible indictment upon this child. Jeroboam is hoping to hear something good, because the last time this prophet spoke to Jeroboam, Jeroboam gave him ten pieces of his robe and said, ten, ten kingdoms or ten uh, tribes belong to you now. The northern ten tribes, you're king now. So Jeroboam is thinking to himself, well, I think I'm going to, here's some more good news. But God says, no, I've got bad news. You haven't been following me. You haven't been doing the right things. So this is what's going to happen. I'm going to bring judgment upon you. And so his wife arose and departed, and she came to Tirzah, which was the capital at that time for the northern ten tribes. And when she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. And then it tells us in verse 21 that Rehoboam then, the son of uh, Solomon, he reigned in Judah, and he was 41 years old when he, be, when he began to reign. He reigned seven, 17 years, excuse me. And he also did wicked things, and, and they built for themselves high places, sacred pillars, wooden images to Ashtoreth on every wooden, on every high hill, excuse me, and under every green tree. And there was also perverted persons in the land, yes, homosexuals, doing horrible, despicable things. And they did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And these kind of practices have been happening. And God says, you guys are continuing to do the same thing. And so it happened in the fifth year that King Rehoboam, of King Rehoboam, that Shishak, king of Egypt, came down and he basically took all of the articles out of the house of God and the king's house and all the gold and all those other things. And um, it was a horrible thing. And then it says, now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam, are they not written in the, the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. And so let's get into uh, chapter 15 now. What I'd like to do is just read the first 24 verses, and then we'll go back and take a look at it a little more carefully. So notice now it says, In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, how would you like to have a name like Nebat? Uh, Abijam became king over Judah, and he reigned three years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Maacah, the granddaughter of Abishalom. 
And he walked in all the sins of his father. Notice there's nothing changing here. Which he had done before him, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father, David. Now, David really wasn't his father, but he was his ancestor. He was really his grandfather. And you're going to see this kind of relationship and these kind of words in the Bible. And you'll notice that there's some distance sometimes between a lineage of men. But when it says the father of somebody, because David remembers the benchmark, so he's, they're always going to be referring back to David as a father, but really it could be a, a grandfather, a great-grandfather, a great-great-great-great-grandfather. So you're going to see that word father. So it can literally mean father or great-grandfather or somebody in the ancestral lineage, okay? So be aware of that, because if you take it literally, you're going to think, oh, there's a mistake in the Bible, <laughs> and it's not really a mistake at all. It's just the way things were written. And so... Nevertheless, verse 4, for David's sake, notice, the Lord, has, the Lord his God gave him up, uh, gave, I'm sorry, gave him a lamp. I'm sorry, let me, let me go back here. I've got to make sure I get this. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by setting up his son after him and by establishing Jerusalem because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except for the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. And now the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And so Abijam rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and then Asa, his son, reigned in his stead. So nepotism was very uh, something that happened uh, a lot back in these times. It was a line of kings. And God told the, uh, the children of Israel, going way back in their history, that it would be through the line of Judah that, that ultimately David would come, and then ultimately where Jesus would come, through the line of Judah, fulfilling the prophecies of Jeremiah, or I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, where the scepter won't depart from Judah, and, and, and also the uh, covenant that God had made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. All of these things add up. And in Isaiah chapter 11, you know, the, the stump from Jesse, all of these things all have their, their place in David and ultimately in Jesus Christ. But nepotism is a word that today when you use it, nobody likes the idea. But back in this time, God didn't have a problem with it. God doesn't have a problem with that. If the person's qualified and the person learns, they can, it doesn't matter who your father was. If you learn from your father's uh, mistakes, good are you if you learn from the mistakes and go forward and start walking with God. So in the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king over Judah. And he reigned 41 years, that's a long time, in Jerusalem. And his grandmother's name was Maacah, the granddaughter of Abishalom who was really Absalom. Whenever you see this word Abishalom, you saw it up in verse uh, 2 as well, and here in verse 10 as well, that means Absalom, David's third son. And so it says, Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David. Notice the comparison again. And he banished the perverted persons from the land and removed all the idols that his father had made. 
Also, he removed Maacah, his grandmother, from being queen mother because she had made an obscene image of Asherah. And Asa cut down her obscene image and burned it in the brook Kidron, which is right to the uh, east of the Temple Mount today, the brook Kidron. But the high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was loyal to the Lord all his days. He also brought into the house of the Lord the things which his father had dedicated and the things which he himself had dedicated, silver and gold and utensils. And no doubt these were things he had won from the wars uh, with the, um, that we'll find out here. And there was war between Asa and ba- uh, um, Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. And Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might let no, none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. And then Asa took all the silver and the gold that was left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house, and he delivered them into the hand of his servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabramon, the son of Hezion, king of, Assy- king of Syria, who dwelt in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me, as there was between my father and your father. See, I have sent you a present of silver and gold. Come and break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. And so Ben-Hadad heeded King Asa and, and, and sent the captains of his armies against the cities of Israel. And he attacked Aijan and Dan and abel beth and all Chinnereth and all the land of Naphtali. And now it happened when Baasha heard that he stopped building Ramah and remained in Tirzah. And then King Asa made a proclamation throughout all Judah, and none was exempted. And they took away the stones and the timber of Ramah, which Baasha had used for building, and with them King Asa built Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah, Now the rest of the acts of Asa, all his might and all that he did, and the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? But in the time of his old age, he was diseased in his feet. And so Asa rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. Then Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. Now, What's interesting here is uh, the very next person that's going to be the successor of the king of Judah, we know that Asa dies and his, his son Jehoshaphat is going to be the next in line. But we're not going to hear about Jehoshaphat until chapter, or excuse me, verse 14 of the very last chapter of 1 Kings. And the reason for that is because after, uh, during Asa, uh, during his reign, there's going to be a, a series of kings of, of Israel that are going to take place. And so uh, between, and also uh, in addition to those five or six kings that we're going to read about over the next several pages, we're also going to see the ministries and the lives of Elijah the prophet and his successor, Elisha the prophet, and their um, interaction with Ahab, king of Israel. And so that's going to basically consume the next several chapters until chapter 22, verse 14, I believe it is, where we finally pick up with this next king of Judah. And so uh, let's go back and take a look at verse 1. Notice it says, and I would encourage you to write in your Bibles, uh, if you don't have it there already, there is a parallel portion to this in 2 Chronicles chapter 13 through 14 verse 1. 
Uh, and so as we read of this uh, life of Abijam down through verse 8, you can um, uh, look at Second Chronicles 13 through 14, verse 1, and it fills in some of the blanks, some more details. And something you need to know about First and Second Chronicles is that you're not going to find much at all about the kings of Israel in First and Second Chronicles because uh, the Bible doesn't really... Um, Number one, those books haven't been found, but the overall tenor of the Bible is about, about the line of Judah to David and then to Jesus. And so the, the, those who uh, canonize the Bible and the books, um, certainly the, the chronicles of the kings of Judah are here for very good reason, but the chronicles of the kings of Israel are not available. God doesn't concern himself with the kings of of Israel because they were all wicked, every single one of them. So he focuses on the kings of Judah, and that's all First and Second Chronicles is about, is the kings of Judah, those southern two tribes. And the only, only time you might see a, a king's name from the northern ten tribes pop in is just by way of reference, but there's nothing about their lives. Um, so just understand that, that First and Second Chronicles are all about the kings of Judah, Okay. So notice, going back in verse 1 here, it says, In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam became king over Judah. And his name is also called Abijah. So as you read Chronicles, Second uh, Chronicles 13, for instance, you're going to see the name, and it's going to uh, be uh, spelled Abijah instead of Abijam. Okay? Don't let that throw you again. In the Bible, there's a number of name changes and different variants of spellings of different names. And just a little bit of um, looking into these things, you become aware of that. Okay, And so Abijah or Abijam, they all are synonymous. He reigned from 913 until 910 B.C. before Christ, so a very short time. It tells us in verse 2 that he reigned three years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Maacah, the granddaughter of Abishalom, who we know is Absalom. Yes, the Absalom that is David's son. His third son was Absalom. Remember the one that was killed in the, in the forest that Joab killed and the rest of them took care of him as well. But notice that this Abijam, verse 3, that he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God. The word Lord there is Jehovah. Never forget that. Because we serve one God. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are all one. But it's one God, but yet three persons. He walked in all the sins of his father. And what a horrible thing, if you think about it, to walk in the sins of your father. When you see the results of your father's life, uh, hopefully we learn from mistakes and pain. And uh, it's important to do that. You know, that, that's what I hope for my life as, I, as my wife and I raise our daughter, you know, to tell her. We're very honest with her about the mistakes that we have made in our life, and especially at her age. Isn't it a joy and a, a privilege and a blessing to be able to share with your kids and be open that, that open with them and that candid about your own mistakes, because I want her to, to not live the way I lived. When I was her age, I was doing all kinds of evil things. But she knows the Lord, and she's only 15. She knew the Lord when she was three years old. She prayed on our couch and asked Jesus into her heart. 
She's much further along than I was. I don't even know who Jesus was. I thought he was a swear word when I was 15. And now my daughter has just so much knowledge of God. And, and, and as time goes on, she's going to grow into it. You know, sort of like a man who buys an extra, extra, extra large shirt and then he has to eat a lot to fill into it, right? Which I'm, on, I'm well on my way, by the way. But not to learn from somebody who's gone through something is one of the worst tragedies. It really is. And even as an adult, I want to learn. I want to learn. I want to grow. Do you still want to grow? Do you still want to learn from the things that we're reading here? Because there's a lot of lessons here. And as we go through the Bible, it's always knocking on the door of my heart. Are you willing? Regardless of your age, I don't care how old you are. We always need to be in that place of being submitted to the Word of God and let Him continually challenge us because usually as the older we get, we're like, been there, done that, got the t-shirt, you know, that whole attitude. But the thing is, is God, He is Emmanuel. He's God with us. He wants to continue to teach us to the very last moment when we take our very last breath. He doesn't want us to just rest on our laurels or, or rest on the things of the past. And, you know, and, and, you know, you've gotten this far and you're going no further. You know, there's a lot of older Christians that have gotten to this place where they're like, I've gotten to where I'm just going to peace out and, and I'm going to level out right here. And God's going, why do that? <laughs> what are you doing? There's no leveling out and just kind of staying at a plateau. Believe me, if you think you're on a plateau, it's, you're going to start dipping it's going to start to dip eventually because if you're not, just like a marriage, if you're not working on that relationship, it's going to start to die. It's going to start to fatigue. It's going to start to atrophy and things are going to start falling off and things aren't going to be going well for you. I would encourage you, regardless of your age, to press in now more than ever before in the history of our country, in the history of the church. Now is the time, Christians, brothers and sisters, loved ones, now is the time for us to get into the game and get into it seriously. God is pleading with us. As you look around, doesn't it spur your heart into wanting to walk a more holy life? To walk a life that pleases him? To be an example? And instead of getting angry and shouting and yelling at people on Twitter, isn't it so much better just to love them? And not add fuel to the fire? Anybody can do that. Ah, but it takes a very strong Christian to hold their speech. Sometimes we do need to be vocal, but you can be vocal in a loving way. Did you know that? And that's a gift that I pray that we all get. We have to be vocal, but we have to do it the right way. And when you do it the right way, people who are receiving it know. They know the difference because they don't see some self-righteous hypocrite yelling at them. They see somebody who's really loving them and concerned about them. And that's why we need to pray about our own hearts before we share with people. Because otherwise, they can take it the wrong way. And yes, the delivery is everything. Because if I come across like I've got it all together and you're lower than me, <laughs> sorry, but you, know, you just haven't reached the plateaus that I've you know, scaled, you know, they're going to be like, I don't want anything to do with this person. Who's going to respond to a fool like that? Ah, but when we go to them with a tear in our eye and say, you know, I want to tell you something, and it's hurting me to tell you, but I need to tell you because I'm struggling with it myself. But here's the deal. This is what the Bible says. This is what I'm seeing. This is what you said. This is what you did. How you hurt me. I need to tell you the truth. Oh, how different the world would be. 
But he walked in the sins of his father, which he had done before him, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was, again, notice the comparison here to David, the benchmark. I mean, obviously, the benchmark is really Jesus Christ, but the root of, of, of Jesse, David, he's going to be the one that God is going to be continually pointing to. Hey, do you guys have a heart like this? Do you have a heart like this? Kings of Judah, as you grow up and as you come into your reign, did you know about David? Have you read about him? Have you, did you know of his heart? Have you read the Psalms of David and how he was broken in pieces over his sin? And you read Psalm 32 and you read Psalm 51 and you read these other Psalms of his and even the imprecatory Psalms where he's really given somebody the business. Lord, break their teeth. Kick their teeth in, Lord, in the name of Jesus. I love imprecatory psalms, by the way. Sometimes I think my, my prayers are imprecatory. But David, nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord as God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem. Notice a lamp. Underline that word. By setting up his son after him, meaning Ab, or Solomon. Because after David was Solomon and now um, at, um Uh, Rehoboam was on the throne. Now, one thing that you're not going to see in this chapter, and um, I'm going to read it to you, but I will have you write down in your Bible somewhere, write down 2 Chronicles chapter 13, verses 4 through 22. And I'm going to read them to you. You don't have to go there, but write that down right around this verse because there's something that happened in Abijam's ministry or in his reign, I should say, that's not recorded for us in Kings, but it is recorded in the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. And I think it's worth looking at So, um, because we're going to see that there was a battle between Jeroboam, the king of the northern ten tribes, and Abijam, this king of the southern two tribes. And, um, and they had war with one another. And Jeroboam, the ungodly king in the north, he had twice as many men, literally roughly 800,000 men versus Abijam's 400,000. And notice the speech. In spite of what we've already read about Abijam and how he, he, um, uh, that he continued, he walked in the sins of his father. But notice something that you will find in Second Chronicles you won't find here And it's a really wonderful thing. Let me read it to you. It says, Then Abijah, he stood on Mount um, Zemaraim, which is in the mountains of Ephraim. And and here he's going to war with Jeroboam, the the king of the northern ten tribes. And he says, Hear me, Jeroboam, and all Jerusalem, or in all Israel, excuse me. Should you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the dominion over Israel to David forever? And that's a true statement. To him and his sons, that's a true statement, by a covenant of salt. And yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord. And then worthless rogues gathered to him and strengthened him themselves against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. And when Rehoboam was young and inexperienced, it could not withstand them. And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord, which is in the hand of the sons of David, and you are a great multitude, and with you are golden calves, which Jeroboam made for you as gods. Have you not cast out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and made for yourselves priests like the the peoples of other lands, to that who that whoever comes to consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams may be a priest of things that are not of God's? 
And you know, as you hear what this man, Abijam, who is saying, regardless of him not following you know, David and actually doing evil things, and you, you look at what this man is saying, and you're like, that's right on, man. Keep going. So I will. Let's go. <laughs> so, but as for us, the Lord is our God, he says, and we have not forsaken him, and, and, and yet he did. But, and the priests who ministered to the Lord are the sons of Aaron, and the Levites attended their duties, and they, they burned to the Lord every morning and every evening burnt sacrifice and sweet incense. And they also set the showbread in order on the, can, the pure uh, gold table and the lampstand of gold with its lamps to burn every evening. For we keep the command of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. That's kind of like the pot calling the kettle black, but just go along with it for now. O children of Israel, do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers, for you shall not prosper. And in that he was saying correctly. You're not going to prosper against God. But in verse 13 it says, But Jeroboam caused an ambush to go around behind them. So they were in front of Judah, and the ambush was behind them. And when Judah looked around, to their surprise, the battle line was at both the rear and in the front. And they cried, notice this, and they cried out to the Lord, and they, the priests sounded the trumpets. And then the men of Judah gave a shout as the men of Judah shouted. It happened that God struck Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. And the children of Israel, the northern ten tribes, they fled before Judah, and God delivered them into their hand. And then Abijah and his people struck them with a great slaughter. So 500,000 choice men of Israel fell slain. And here's the verse. Thus, the children of Israel were subdued at that time, and the children of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord God of their fathers. Isn't that amazing? I find that amazing. Even though Abijah was already involved in idolatry and continuing down that road, finally he gets up the chutzpah and stands on top of the mountain in front of Jeroboam and all the, the, the Israel, the northern ten tribes, their armies, and he gives this speech. He's belting it out and he's giving this speech, which is all good. And God's going, I like it. Your heart's not quite there, but what you're saying is true. And I'm going to deliver you. And we're going to look at why I believe God did that. In fact, why did God deliver Abijam and Judah from Israel? Did they deserve it at this time? No, they didn't. Abijam didn't deserve it, neither did the people. Because we see that in the very first few verses of chapter 15, that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. But Abijam was inspired, obviously led by the Lord, and God heard the prayer, heard the speech, and he delivered them. So why did God do this? I believe it's because God is a God of grace. <laughs> and I also believe it's because God had uh, made promises to David and to Solomon that he would not break. God is a promise keeper, the real promise keeper. He is the only promise keeper. I break promises. In fact, I've learned not to even make promises to God, especially because I can't, I'm not capable of keeping them. But he is capable. Now, verse 18 that I just read to you gives us an answer of why God might have done this, but also because, like I said, the promises that God gave to David first and then to Solomon. And you may be asking yourself, well, what promise did God give to David? And you've heard me say this, but I'm going to share it with you again. It's 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verse 12 through 16, the Davidic covenant. And I'm just going to be brief in this, just from 12, verse 12 through 16, 2 Samuel 7, 
verse 12 through 16. And this is what God spoke to David long before Solomon, long before Abijam or anybody, Rehoboam. He says, when your days are fulfilled, David, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. And obviously, God was speaking of Solomon, who hadn't been born, or if he had, he was very small. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men, but my mercy shall not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you, and notice, and your house, David, and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. God made it, he said it three times, your throne will be established forever. So now, what about the promise to Solomon? Because remember, there was David, Solomon, Rehoboam, and now Abijam. And Abijam's giving this great speech, and the speech was good, even though his performance was pretty, pretty poor, but God delivered them because of what he promised to David, which I just read to you, and now he does it because of the promise that God spoke to Solomon. It's in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 11 through 13. 1 Kings 11, verse 11 through 13, and this is what God spoke to Solomon. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this, and, have not, and because, remember, Solomon got engrossed into idolatry big time toward the latter part of his reign. Because you have done this, God says, and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. And he knew who that was. His servant was Jeroboam. For the sake of your father David... Nevertheless, I'm sorry, nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son, which is really Judah and Benjamin, uh, for the sake of my servant David, again, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So God's promises are in play, in full display here, as Abijam is giving this speech to Jeroboam. God is delivering them. When they were outnumbered two to one, because of the speech that Abijam had given, which God, I'm sure, approved of, but now God's thinking, I've made a promise to your father, you know, to your grandfather and to your great-grandfather, and I'm going to be true to that promise because my Messiah is going to come through the line of Judah, and that's ultimately it's going to be cut off you know, uh, before they went into captivity in Babylon, but he is coming yet again. Jesus was born, wasn't he? He came to the temple. They rejected him. They crucified him. They, he, he died on the cross. Three days later, he rose again, and then 40 days later, ascended into heaven. And the Bible tells us that he's coming back again in the future. After the rapture of the church, he's going to come back with us to the earth, and he's going to set up his reign on this earth in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And this, these prophecies will all be fulfilled at that time. And so there's a lot on the line here. And God is saying, I'm going to hold true to my promise. And notice, it says, Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord gave, gave him, David, a lamp in Jerusalem by setting up his son after him and by establishing Jerusalem. This idea of a lamp is literally a light. And it can mean a literal light or figuratively. And we see this mentioned previously when Ahijah the prophet spoke to Jeroboam in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 36. 
Um, I already read it this evening uh, when Ahijah was speaking to Jeroboam in verse 36. It says, And to his son I will give one tribe that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem. So the lamp seems to mean a standard or a witness or a testimony, if you will. A lamp, a testimony, a light, a witness. And God would continue his promise to keep his promise that he made to David and will ultimately fulfill it when Jesus Christ comes back to the earth at the end of the great tribulation, we know. But I want to encourage you that we in the church also, we are to be a witness as well. We are to be a lamp to our generation. As David and his seed was going to be a lamp in Jerusalem, God has placed you and I as a lamp here on the earth until the church is removed. And and Jesus told us in Matthew 5, verse 13, he says, you, Jesus first said, I am the light of the world, right? But then he turned the tables and he says, but now you, disciples, you are the light of the world and you are salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. And see, that's what he wants us to be. We are a city set on a hill. And literally here in this area that we live or that we're occupying right now is on a hill. If you go out about 50 feet off there, you're going to go off into a ditch. A hill. There's a hill, a big one. You're going to roll down and you may not recover, okay? It's pretty steep. We're on a hill. We're a city on a hill. And a city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify you. Glorify Calvary Chapel? No, that they may glorify your Father in heaven. It's all about Him. It's about glory to Jesus and the Father. It's all about Him. You know, and as I was reading this, it struck me, uh, and I remembered when we were going through the book of Revelation, and I remembered the first, uh, in the first chapter of Revelation, in, in, in verse 12, it says, John speaking, he says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to, the, uh, down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. And then it tells us, it, 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 it tells us what, these, what this, these seven lampstands are. In verse 20 of, of Revelation 1, it says, The mystery in, of, the, of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So Jesus is in the midst of his church. And that's the picture that you get in that first in, in 12 and 13. He is in the midst of his church. And they are the, the lampstands. They are the witness his spirit working in them, they are going to be a witness to the world around them. And then when you go to chapter 2 of Revelation, it says uh, to the church of Ephesus, he says, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. He walks in the midst of us. And we, the church, are to be those salt and light until the Lord removes us from the earth at the rapture. And we already looked at that very clearly shown us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18, very clearly shown to us 
in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58. Because our witness, our lamp will be taken from the earth. Think about that. When the rapture comes, the witness, our testimony, is going to be gone. And then the world is going to have, there's going to be nothing keeping all these bills being passed. I mean, it's going to, be, it's going to look like hell. It already is hell, but it's going to look a lot worse. When the church is removed, every foul thing is going to be fair game. And they're going to love it. They're finally going to be like, oh, I'm so glad we're free from these, these Bible-thumping, fundamental, pre-trib, pre-millennial people, these constitutional Republicans. I'm so glad they're out of here. Now, don't get me wrong. Let me just say a little thing here. I've got to do this. There, there are Democrats who are saved, and, and there are Republicans who are saved, and there's also Democrats and Republicans who are not saved. So having said that, because no doubt I'm going to get a phone call on that one. <laughs> It'll be somebody on the radio. They'll call, they'll call them and go, we're not listening to that guy ever again. Um, but notice, when we are removed, the lamp, the light, the testimony of Christ, uh, at least in the church, is going to be removed. And then sometime in the middle of the great tribulation period, after the church is removed, it says something really interesting. You remember this. It says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is the outside of the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months or three and a half years. And I will give power, notice, to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days, which is, by the way, 42 months or three and a half years. And I will give power to them, and they will prophesy 1,260 1,260 days, again, three and a half months, clothed in sackcloth. And notice what it says in verse 4 of Revelation 11. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. The two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And so it goes on, it says in verse 7, that when they finish their testimony, the beast, notice, when they finish their testimony... The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and ultimately kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, which is, by the way, Jerusalem, where also our Lord was crucified, just in case you don't know what that means, now you know. Then, they arose, then arose people and tribes and tongues and nations to see their dead bodies, and after three days, three and a half, uh, after three and a half days, the breath of life entered them, and they stood on their feet, and God took them up. Their lampstand is going to be removed. Even during the great tribulation period, God's going to give them a witness, give them a testimony to listen to. But once, that t- once the time is up, he's going to take them up too. And oh my, things are really going to get wicked. Up to that point, things are already very wicked. But then once they leave, the witness is gone. And the lamp has departed. The lamp is gone. And see, that's, that's what this was all about. When he was saying that the lamp of David, my, my, the witness of, of David and his succeeding generations going down through uh, all the way to Jesus Christ, all of that was important. The witness of the line of Judah, of those kings, pointing toward ultimately Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the root of David, who 
everything is about. So back, back to verse 5, back in our text, it says, Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and didn't turn aside from anything, except in the matter of uh, Uriah the Hittite. And, and I love the fact that God isn't partial concerning sin. He's not a respecter of persons. God will call sin, sin, and he, he doesn't play games like many people do in the church even, and even pastors. He doesn't play games and say, I have my favorites, I'm not going to punish them or, 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 or remove their lampstand in a will. Not their salvation per se, but remove their witness, their effectiveness, so it will just be extinguished. He doesn't play games with that, and neither should we. And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. Now, many manuscripts, you might want to write over Rehoboam. You might want to write Abijam, because that's really what it means. Uh, many of the um, Greek manuscripts, the majority of them, have Abijam there instead of Rehoboam. And that makes sense contextually with where we're looking at, and that's important. But notice in verse 7, it says, Now the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Yes, they are. And I gave you the verses, and you can read them later. You can get more information about it. And so, um, so Abijam rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, which is Zion. And if you go to Israel today, um, I, I think, I forget how many years ago it was, um, when I was there in uh, 2011, they had just a year or two prior to that, so probably around, I don't know, 2007, 2008, 2009, somewhere in that period, they discovered the, the, the southern, the southeastern um, portion of the Temple Mount, they started digging and they found Zion. Dave, where David's palace was, where the, the, the tabernacle that David had built for the Ark of the Covenant that he brought into Jerusalem. That's where it all stood. And they've uncovered all this stuff now. Now they've got a whole big thing over it. And you can go and you can visit. It's really amazing to see all these places where David was. This was palace. You're visiting his palace and you're seeing the ruins of it. It's amazing. So notice, now Asa comes into the picture now that Abijam dies and um, a very short reign. But in the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, uh, Asa became king over Judah. And Asa reigned from 911 B.C. till 870 B.C. And he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His grandmother's name was Maacah, the granddaughter of uh, Abishalom or Absalom. And Asa did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, make note of Asa because he is the first good king of Judah after the kingdom had split up. You know, you know during David and, and, and Solomon, the kingdom was united, but after Solomon, the kingdom became divided. You know, with Jeroboam in the, in the north, northern ten tribes and Rehoboam in the southern two tribes. But Asa was the first reformer king. He was the very first reformer king. He's the first one uh, after all this mess. And what a wonderful man this was. He reminds me a lot of Josiah, who we'll get to later on. Another great reformer king. Perhaps the best. Josiah. But now Asa, this reformer king, and he banished the perverted persons from the land, and he removed the idols that his father had made. And again, these perverted persons are male temple prostitutes that practice sodomy and prostitution and religious rituals. That's what they did. So these are evil people. 
And also he removed Maacah, his grandmother, from being queen mother because she had made an obscene image of Asherah. Asherah is a Canaanite goddess of fertility. And what they would do is, since we're um, all adults here, they would make these um, pillars. And, and they, they, they were like, uh, like phallic symbols. And, and, and they made these things. And his mother or grandmother had one of these. And, and he cut it up. And he, he tore it down and he burned it in the brook Kidron. And you know what's so fascinating about going to Israel? And if you get to go next year with us, I hope you do. I hope I get to go. Um, I'd love to. But uh, if we go there, um, and, and there's plans of going, just to be going to walk all around Jerusalem on the temple area and down in the Kidron and to think about all the things, if that ground could speak. As you're reading these things and you're walking across the Kidron Valley and to think of the blood that had been shed, and the people that we're reading about in the Bible, there's DNA, and I, I'm just, I, I get weird like that. I think about stuff like that. It, it's everywhere. If you just were able to dig down far enough, you'd still find artifacts. And they do. They're finding them all the time. Someone will be in their garden in Israel and pull out a coin. You know, they're, they're planting their rutabaga or whatever, or, uh, or their rhubarb, and they uh, pull out their little spade, and there's a coin. Oh, wow, look, it's got, wow. It's got David on the front. <laughs> you know, they're finding stuff like that all the time. But the high places, notice, weren't removed. And nevertheless, notice, Asa's heart was loyal to the Lord his God all of his days. And he also brought into the house of the Lord the things which his father had dedicated, the things which he had for himself had dedicated, and all the wars. Uh, now there was war between Asa and Baasha. We're going to learn about him later, king of Judah, all their days. And Baasha, king of Israel, came against Judah and built Ramah. Ramah is just this little town, remember where uh, Samuel lived, and it's just north of Jerusalem. And what is Baasha, the king, what, what, what is he building so close to uh, Judah and Benjamin. Why is he building and fortifying this city, Ramah, when it's right on the doorstep of Judah? Well, for very good reason. He didn't want anybody to go out from him into the kingdom because that's where all the sacrifices, that's where all the Levites were going, that's where all the right worship was happening that God ordained and approved of. And many people were leaving from the north and going to the south. And so he's like, if I'm going to lose people, I better set up some kind of you know, uh, place to where you know, they're not going to be able to go by. I'll send them back home. What are you doing? Why are you going to go worship God when you can worship this uh, or golden uh, cow? And then Asa, he took all the silver and the gold that was left in the treasuries. And finally, what he does is, this is one of the chinks in his armor. Uh, we find it, finally, you know, he... He basically takes all the silver and gold from the king's house and he goes and he talks to Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, and he says, will you break your allegiance with, with, the, with the northern uh, ten tribes and come against them? Here, I've given you all the silver and gold. Will you just get them out of our hair because they're, they're, they're coming against us? And so he does. And while he's doing that, while the king of Syria and his army is coming down, Baasha and all of them are, are building this fortifying this thing right on the border of Judah and Benjamin. And once he hears that the king of Syria is coming into his land from the north, he leaves off building Ramah, there it is, and, uh, and he goes back to, you know, to deal with this invasion that he's got coming. And so, um, so Ben-Hadad did that, and now it happened when Baasha heard it, he stopped building Ramah, he went to Tirzah, 
And then King Asa made a proclamation, and we read about this. He had everybody come to that place in Ramah and take all of these building materials that Baasha so gratefully had given and, and, po- and put there. And they took all of it, and they began building uh, these towns right to the north of Jerusalem, which is uh, Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. They began fortifying those things as a barrier, if you will, to because Ramah is here, and these other two towns, Benjamin and Mizpah, or Agiba and Mizpah, are very close by. And so what they're doing is they're building fortifications to keep that from happening. And so it says, The rest of the acts of Asa and all of his might and all he did, are they not in the, uh, in the cities which he built? Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And yes, they are. And you can go to... You don't have to go there now, but maybe write it down. Second uh, Chronicles chapters 14 through 16 gives some more information concerning that. And you can read that. And it's really fascinating, actually, to read. You kind of get some uh, filling in the blanks of things. And so let's go on to uh, verse 24 here. We're getting close. So, um, so Asa rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And then Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. Verse 25, so Nadab, after, after Jeroboam dies, Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years. So he reigned from about 910 to 909 B.C., so just maybe one, one and a half, maybe two years at the most. And so um, one thing you have to remember as we go through kings, there's going to be a lot of overlapping and a lot of, uh, of this kind of thing happening where it's talking about kings of the northern ten tribes and then kings of the southern two tribes. And so one is dying, one is you know, living for so many years. and then So it's keeping tabs on the northern tribes and the southern two tribes. And it's sort of like a jigsaw puzzle as you go through the, the Bible in that way. But notice in verse 26 that this Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, walked in the way of his father, and in the sin which he made Israel to sin. And remember, nothing ever changed with the northern tribes. There was not one single king that did the right thing. Only in Judah was there a handful that really did the right thing. Everybody in the north Everybody, every single king, they were bent on evil, and they continued doing it. And then, um, and it says in verse 27, Then Baasha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, he conspired against Nadab, and Baasha killed him at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel laid siege to Gibbethon. And Baasha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. So now Baasha, his reign... Is, uh, began around 909 B.C. And it was so that when he became king, that notice what he did. <laughs> he killed all the house of Jeroboam. This Baasha. He killed all the house of Jeroboam. He did not leave to Jeroboam anything that breathed until he had destroyed him according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. Now we read that earlier. Do you remember? Remember back in 1 Kings chapter 14? You might want to write the reference off to verse 29 here. Read 1 Kings 14 verses 7 through 14. But remember what the, what the thing was. This is... Um, 
Uh, let me get right to it. Therefore, behold, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel, bond and free. I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam. And it literally came to pass because Baasha killed Nadab, who was Jeroboam's son. And then he, he wasn't satisfied with that. He killed all of the sons of Jeroboam, all the males of Jeroboam. That means there's no possible way that any of the sons of Jeroboam could actually take over the line. Now you've got a man named Baasha, who was from the tribe of Issachar. Now he is on the throne, and now things continue going. But God fulfilled the prophecy. And Baasha just happened to be the nut that did it. Pretty interesting. And notice that Baasha did this, and God allowed it. And why? Verse 30 tells us why. Because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he had sinned and by which he had made Israel sin. You know, it would have been one thing for God just to judge Jeroboam, but it was more than that because Jeroboam was the leader of that group of people, of those ten tribes. And God holds that leader ultimately responsible for the tenor of his rule and his reign. What was he doing And he, he led them into idolatry, and they were willing to be led into idolatry. But he judged Jeroboam, and he allowed all of him, including his sons, all of his sons, to be killed by this man, Baasha, who now is the king of the northern ten tribes. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Now we don't have those books. They're not extant. They're not available Nobody's found them, but somewhere there, there was a record of that, but God sees fit to only include the Chronicles of Judah, again, for the reasons I stated earlier. And there was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. And then finally, Baasha reigns in Israel. So verse 33, in the year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, the son of Ahijah, became king over all Israel in Tirzah, which happened to be their capital now, and he reigned for 24 years. Isn't it interesting that sometimes God allows somebody who is so evil to reign for a very long time, and then you get some guy who is a really wonderful person, and he does everything that God wants him to do. He's a star, and, and, and he's just doing all these great things, and his life is snuffed out like that. And then you got somebody who's just evil to the bone, and God allows them to live long time. Now, it doesn't always happen that way. We know that sometimes it doesn't work that way. And there's no formula, is there? See, you and I, we like to, we like to have this kind of formula in our heads. Well, if you're evil, your life's going to be shortened. And, and, you know, sometimes it is. Sometimes they live long past the righteous. These things happen for reasons that we don't understand, but God knows, and that's good enough for me, I don't have the mind of God, and he has a reason for allowing and doing the things that he does. But notice finally in verse 34, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin by which he made Israel to sin. And what a horrible thing, isn't it? Just to consider. So there's a lot to learn here if you think about it. You know, learning from the past, you know, and to understand that people are people. We, we really haven't changed. We haven't evolved. Some people say, oh, we've evolved. No, there's no such thing as evolution. 
Evolution is a fallacy. It is a fraud. It is a fake. It has been from the very beginning. And any intelligent person who really believes it, it's not a mental issue. It's a heart issue because they can be told the facts and they refuse to see the truth. You can call, you can show it right to them and, and God says it very plainly and yet they will deny it and deny it and it's like it's insanity. God created all things in six days. In six 24-hour periods, he made all things. They didn't evolve. But after all that, God wants us to learn from our past. And, you know, to me, that's a good thing for us to look at tonight as we, as we see this, not to mention just the historical things that were happening. It's like, are we learning from our past? Can we, will we learn from our past? And you know, our country is at a precipice right now because we haven't learned from the past. Someone once said, the, what we've learned from history is that we've learned nothing from history. Can we see what's coming? Biblically, does it make sense? It's frightening, but yes, it does. I don't know. What's going to happen if, we, if we're going to have a reprieve for a period of time before the Lord takes us? have no idea. But I know this for a fact. As I look around and as I see the things that are happening, the major things that are happening in the world right now are all aligning with the Scripture, all aligning with everything we talked about when we were in the book of Revelation. It is literally coming to focus so clearly now. So it behooves us to listen. It behooves us to learn. It behooves us to pay attention. Otherwise, we become like men who are kings of Israel. They didn't learn anything from their fathers, their wicked dads. When they saw them living horrible things and God bringing judgment and allowing them to go into you know, losing wars and battles, and they, just, they didn't learn. They just continued to perpetuate the same awful, hideous, idolatrous practices. And America is no different. America, we need to repent from our sin. We have sinned grievously against God. And thank God that just not too long ago he delivered, you know, he, he came through. To him be the glory for this, but remove that stain of Roe v. Wade. It's still not going to stop people, but think about how many hundreds, may, may, thousands certainly, maybe even, who knows, hundreds of thousands of kids that have already been saved as a result of that on June 24th. Think of how many people, young people, kids, are being born today that wouldn't be born because of that. And it's up for us to be vocal about that even in the state of New York. We need to pray. But let's learn from our mistakes and, and not be like these things that we read. See, the scripture was written for our nurture and our admonition, for our learning, and that's why it's there for us. We learn about Jesus, we learn about his plan of redemption, but in the process of doing that, we learn about our nature, we, we, we learn about the gulf between us and God, and we learn about the one who is the mediator between us and God, the man Jesus Christ, who is almighty God come in human flesh. And it's in him that we have to answer to and I'm so looking forward to seeing him. How about you? You looking forward to seeing him? I can't wait. I really can't wait. The tears that are going to flood our eyes when we see him face to face in new bodies. 
And all of this toil and troubles down here in the earth will be like a distant memory. Get carried away and think about that and let your heart be relieved. Because church, that's what we have to look forward to. And it's coming. It's coming. Let's stand and pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word, Lord. And and may we be unlike some of the examples we saw here tonight in chapter 15. May we learn from history. May we learn from our parents. May we learn from those who have gone before us, Lord. Help us to be students of your word, Lord, to be students, Lord, of your heart. Lord, to listen to you, to be willing to, to change. Lord, would you change us tonight, Lord? Reach down tonight, even while we rest, Lord, and do the magic, do the wonderful work that you do and make us, conform us to your image, Heavenly Father, through the, the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. Would you please do that, Lord? We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.